This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. How you doing, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? I'm good. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. How are you? I'm good. Today, we are proud to welcome Kasim Sultan, uh, who's carved out quite a career over the years for himself and his 46-plus years as a professional musician. Chances are that Kasim's accomplishments are an indelible part of your daily playlist, whether you realize it or not. Today, to date, he has played and sung on albums that have sold more than 85 million copies, regularly performing and touring with world-renowned bands and artists. To name a few, Todd Rundgren, who we'll delve in uh, deep with because he's done a lot with Todd over the years, as well as was a member of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts for a time, and Blue Oyster Cult. He's worked with Meatloaf, Hall & Oates, Cheap Trick, Patti Smythe, Indigo Girls, Steve Stevens, Richie Sambora, Patti Smith, and many more. So we're proud to welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Kasim Sultan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a, uh, it's a real honor and pleasure to be here. And we tried to do this, what's, we, we were talking earlier, like six times. So the fact that we're even talking is really, uh, that's, that's an accomplishment in and of itself. I was completely ready for today not to happen. <laughs> Me too. We were planning this before the pandemic. Uh, yeah. you know, it's like, wow, I don't know how this happened. Well, probably the next pandemic is going to be a little <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> no, let's not, let's not go there. Kasim, it's great to have you here, man. I want to start out, of course, everybody's familiar with your work with Todd, especially. And I knew you were a great player and a great singer, but man, I had no idea how accomplished you are. I listened to uh, Kasim. 2021 delved into it widely well now it was a couple of weeks ago and i listened to it again today and if you don't mind i'm just going to go through and talk about this record because i think our listeners one and all would do themselves a great honor to check this record out oh uh, thank you I, I i really appreciate that sure i was knocked out more love tune number one what a great way to start an album that's a great tune great vocals from you and most of all a great message the band's cooking i don't know how you could start a record out any better than that 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 was the last song we recorded for the record we had finished phil and i i did the whole record with phil thorn alley and phil produced we've been writing buddies and uh kind of cohorts since uh mid 90s when we met and kind of you know shared some musical interests and thought it would be a good idea to do some work together. We've been working together ever since. And this was the first, uh, my first record that Phil produced top to bottom. I've, I've worked with him on a number of other records uh, over the years. Yeah, we finished the record. We finished recording everything. And uh, Phil said, you know, we need one more song. And I have this idea kind of floating around and played me the demo for it. And I said, yeah, sure, that might work. 
we finished it up and then it just it's just one of those happy accidents where you have a finished piece of music and you say you know what this is how the record should start so the record starts with the last song recorded yeah i'm real proud of that record it's a it's a really really good record it really is man the second tune unsung it's got a great magical mystery tour kind of a thing about it man i just love it if you dig the beatles you're going to dig this we'll compare people with something but that's only in a light of saying man if you dig this you need to check this out um but it's beautiful we completely ripped off the beatles on that one there's a direct rip from i want to tell you this is a little quirky piano thing and the song came together was one of the first songs that phil lives in in London, I did most of the record in London, and I had some ideas, and I brought them over to Phil, and we we kind of you know piecemeal uh, finished song by song by song. Unsung, that's the kind of material that I gravitate towards. That kind of you know quirky pop music, little on the Beatles side. I mean, I could name a half a dozen other bands that are similar to that genre, but that's my comfort zone. That type of three and a half minute pop song that you know kind of has a couple of hooks here and there and it's nice and you can hum along and you, you remember it for five minutes <laughs> well it's a nice pop shuffle and it makes you bob your head right off the bat you know even if you're not listening intently but if you listen intently then you start catching all the little nice little bits in it yeah i think it's great man i was knocked out by this record blame somebody else Real cool Mellotron opening, a great key change in the chorus, great arrangement. That song is like a, a more or less a nod to Weezer. It's kind of a, it's got a, like a real Weezer chorus in it. Again, you know, I, I grew up, uh, I am a child of the 60s, both aesthetically and musically. After the Beatles uh, kind of uh, opened that that floodgate, not, not just British rock, but... Uh, rock from this country as well there was this influx of heavy heavy music like led zeppelin and jeff beck from uh the becca law album and uh blind faith and uh cream and then black sabbath and stuff like that and that was all stuff that i listened to it kind of whether you whether you want to agree or not it plays a role in how you uh interpret your your own music oh sure it has to while I claim to be a, a pop songwriter, it's like there's a heavy element, the stuff that, that I gravitate towards as well. It's called osmosis. And that makes it more palatable for nowadays anyway, if you heavy it up. Like Queen heavied up the Beatles too, you know, it just kind of keeps getting passed down. And the next song has my favorite lyric in it, which was God Kicked a Stone, but the lyric is, just one more stone that God kicked around. That's really good. Well, you know, the funny thing about that is that when we wrote the song, uh, Phil came up with the title because of his accent. It was originally written as uh, just one more stone that got. And I said to Phil, I said, you know, really cool is if we kind of made it about god you know and it's like you know god just kind of playing the game yeah well you want to want to make god laugh have a plan and then we just kind of skewed the lyrics to uh to make it uh god-centric um as opposed to just a generic one more stone that got kicked around it's like i could have sworn i said did you say god kicked around he says no but i love that and i said well that's great yeah that was a happy accident for sure it's almost so obvious that 
It's one of those when you hear that, like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Why have I never heard that before? And God would have been fine, too, but God is like, yes. And you know what? It reminds me, that song, you know, we talk about bands from the 60s. It's got kind of a kinks, it's not about 1967, something else kind of a feel with the tuba bass and Dead End Street or Big Black Smoke or one of those tunes. Yeah, just real quirky stuff, you know, just stuff that you that um, is a little off the grid. Who else do you listen to that's, apart from the fact that you worked with, Todd, who's pretty off the grid. Who else do you listen to, apart from Beatles and so on, that you consider off the grid? I mean, I thought when Brian and Van Dyke Parks got together, that took things nicely off the grid as well. Who else do you enjoy? I'm a big Rufus Wainwright fan. I think that his uh, interesting singer, very, very interesting singer, um, and uh, his chord changes and his arrangements, they follow no pattern whatsoever. The, he is his own genre and lyrically uh rufus writes stuff that is just it's kind of hard to put your finger on you know it's it it, it kind of doesn't make any sense it's like a little bit of word salad really difficult to write those kind of songs and make them sound good another one is uh jonathan brooke i first discovered jonathan when she was in a band called the story with jennifer kimball they, they did one record together and there is not a bad song on that they were called the story uh and that's that that's a great record i have a radio show that i do every week a terrestrial radio show called it's my world and welcome to it and i discover a lot of new artists by putting together playlists for the uh, for the radio show, um, there's a, a young girl by the name of, of Madison Cunningham who does similar stuff to Rufus, but a whole new take on it. She's got a couple of really really cool songs, you know, that kind of like weird stuff. And I mean, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Rufus gets all that with his parents, you know. That's that's in his blood because they're both good songwriters too, right? Loudon released a record about a year and a half, two years ago, maybe maybe even a little bit longer um it was him with a big band really he did uh covers of all kind of obscure broadway musical tunes with a big band and yeah it's just fantastic it's absolutely fantastic yeah the tune that i think that should be in, in a in a proper world uh in dane's world right now the song that everybody would be driving around listening to on their way to work Duh, is Fast Car. It's a great rock and roll tune in the Badfinger, Raspberries, Big Star kind of a way. And the lead stuff, the double-tracked lead, is like smoking hot. In Dane's World, that's on the radio right now. It's number one. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that was a, that was like, I think, the second single, whatever a single is these days, from the record. And uh, yeah, um, actually, Phil wrote that song. Phil is releasing a record, I think, uh, within the next couple of days that has an, an alternate version of Fast Car on it. But our version, uh, uh, that the version that's on my record is, uh, it's just another one that's, you know, um, it, it, it's it's just a high energy, in your face uh, rock and roll song. Yeah, exactly. It's a driving song, man. I mean, you know, in every way that you could use the term. And I'll, I'll just mention one more song that really flipped me out. And Hugh needs to go straight to this if he hasn't heard it. To her, like a classic McCartney tune. Great string arrangement, incredible vocal performance. Tell me about that song. That was another song that Phil brought in. And um, I just fell, immediately fell in love with it. I, I can see why. I, I kind of fancy myself a balladeer. I, I've enjoyed that type of, of material 
a lot over my the course of my career when I do my solo material. Melancholy has a of great place in in ballads and and I just really like that you know that kind of like uh, that kind of romantic, very little instrumentation. Let the words and the melody speak for the for the song. And uh, that's one of my favorite songs on the record, actually. Are you a minor key kind of guy or major? when it comes to that genre i would have to say that you know the saddest key of all some people say it's d minor but i think it's a minor it depends on what movie you're watching you mentioned word salad a little while ago and i'm always keen to know with musicians i love writing and arranging i dread lyrics and i really respect them so much that i choke almost when it comes to really trusting myself and i understand i've said it before why elton has bernie how do you feel about lyrics? Do they ever come first, or is it always the music and arrangement that you bring the words to? For the most part, it's music and melody come first, and then it's it it, it is a complete Rubik's cube to try to um, fit a, a lyric into a melody and chord change. It's a little backwards. I wish I was one of those people that could. I witnessed for the longest time Todd would record a track and we wouldn't really have any kind of idea of what the lyric for the track would be, or maybe Todd had a title or something like that. No joke. I mean, he would sit down with a composition notebook and 30 minutes have 90% of the song finished with a brilliant lyric too. That's a gift. I was not bestowed that gift. When you say composition notebook, you're talking about the fact that he notates on staff as he's listening? In a notebook, uh, just a, a regular like a notebook that you got in school. He would just sit down on a couch and just start scribbling out a lyric. And next thing you know, you you have Love is the Answer, which is a beautiful, uh, beautiful song. So to answer your question, I, I pain over lyric. It takes me forever to write uh, what I consider a decent lyric. And then I'm always like, I should have made that a little bit better. I should have changed that. I should have used a different word there. I should have been more descriptive. Or I heard an interview with a songwriter not too long ago that they were spot on when they said, uh, it's more important to finish a bad song than to not finish a song at all. So just finish it, just get it done and move on. And you're still working on your craft, whether it's a you know a wonderful tune or not, at least you're writing. Do you subscribe to that diligently or do you have a lot of sketches that you need to go back to? I have stuff that's 30 years old that I that I listened to, like a cassette that I made when I was still living at my parents' house or something like that. I'm like, you know, I should finish that idea. That's a really good idea. I must have, you know, 130 second ideas on my phone that if I'm driving or something like that, maybe I'll listen to my voice memos and uh, I kick myself for not finishing, you know, half of the ideas that I have started. The great painters sketch first, too. So there's no shame in doing the noodle first and then coming back. The problem is, is that, you know, life creeps in. John Lennon said, life is what happens when you're busy doing other things. Speaking of going back, obviously the big names stick out and who you've worked with. And we'll get into some of that in a little bit. But prior to joining Utopia in 1976, your music career began playing piano and vocals with Cherry Vanilla and also the Brooklyn-based band Sleepy Hollow. And I started thinking, gosh, that must have been an amazing time to be starting out in music in the New York area. Can you take us back to that time a little bit and what it was like for you and kind of, you know, getting your feet under you before you uh, 
join Utopia in 76? I kind of knew I had one of those uh, epiphanies when I was about uh, nine years old. Uh, and like so many of my peers, uh, I, I saw uh, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I watched it. I, and that February of 1964, and I, and I said, that, that's what I'm going to do. I, I'm done. Don't have to worry about school. Don't have to worry about getting a job or anything like that. That's what I'm going to do. I think I got a, an electric guitar a couple of years, maybe a year and a half later for Christmas. And I taught myself how to play. That was just something that I, I knew exactly what my purpose in life was. When, when I got old enough to kind of uh, venture out on my own, I guess I was about 14 years old and uh, a friend of a friend was uh, a, a recording engineer in Manhattan. Uh, and he worked, uh, a guy by the name of Vinnie Leary. Uh, he used to be in a band called The Fugs, which was a, uh, a, a 60s alt band. The first uh, curse word band ever, right? Yeah, I remember those guys. Yeah. Yeah. And he worked at a studio called Variety on 42nd Street uh, between 6th and 7th Avenue in Manhattan. I buddied up with him and I said, he must have been about, I guess, maybe seven, six, seven, eight years older than me. And I just said, you know, I'd love to uh, come into the studio and watch you work. And before I knew it, I was a tape op. I was an assistant engineer and I, I, I learned how to wrap cables and uh, I, I was, yeah, I worked a variety of recording studios on. I would go into Manhattan uh, in like, you know, maybe late afternoon and wouldn't come home until one o'clock in the morning at 14, you know, taking the ferry from Staten Island where my folks live. And that was my first introduction to recording. It's amazing. 14 years old. I mean, now you don't hardly let your kid go out on the street in front of your own house at 14. You know? Yeah. What year would that have been? That would have been 1972 or 71 even. How old when you joined Utopia then? You were what? I was 20. So then I uh, I was just completely determined to have a career in the music business or as a musician. I'm not entirely sure how I met Richie, uh, Richie Belay from Sleepy Hollow. But at that point, I, I was a bass player as well. I, I met the band Sleepy Hollow. They needed a guitar player. I did start playing guitar, but... I switched to bass to join a, a band that was around the block from where I live. They fired me a year later because I didn't have an amplifier. I cried and went home crying to my mom. Uh, and I, I said, I'll show them. And then I started playing with Sleepy Hollow uh, as the guitar player. My then girlfriend, who became my wife, my high school sweetheart, saved up her, her money from her job and bought me an upright piano. To my mom's basement. I taught myself how to play piano. And there was an audition that had come up. A buddy of mine uh, said, I'm, I'm working with this woman by the name of Cherry Vanilla. She needs a piano player. Uh, would you be interested in auditioning for it? It might be a good thing for you to do. And I said, yeah, sure. I'll try out. I tried out for Cherry's band. Um, it was me and uh, this virtuoso piano player by the name of uh, Jan Mullaney who's still in the music business right now, actually. He just played circles around me. But I sat down and I did the best I could. I, I, I was a terrible piano player, but she hired me because I could sing. And that's how I got into the music, uh, into the music scene of Manhattan in 1973. Started hanging around with, uh, with um, Michael Kamen, who was um, in a band called the New York Rock Ensemble at that time. 
He was playing with uh, David Bowie as his musical director on the Diamond Dogs tour. Another buddy of mine, Earl Slick, who was also playing with David Bowie at the time, who was a fellow Staten Islander, uh, went to his house one day, and, and this was in 1976. Now I'm, I'm two years into playing with Cherry. I became friends with Mick Ronson, um, Lee Childers, Tony Zanetta from Main Man Records, all, all these amazing people in the New York punk music scene at the time. So I had to take Slick to the uh, to JFK uh, for a flight uh, over to England and uh, walked into his house, which was about three blocks from my mom's. And he said, do you feel like playing bass for Todd Rundgren? I said, yeah, I guess. I, I don't know. Said, well, said, when we get to JFK, call Michael Kamen up and tell him that you're interested in the gig and he'll recommend you. I put a dime in the, in the payphone at JFK at the TWA terminal and uh, told Michael that I was interested in, uh, in auditioning for Todd Rundgren's band. He said, I don't even know that you play bass. Uh, he said, I thought you played piano. He said, well, bass is my main instrument. I said, I do play piano, but I am also a bass player. And he recommended me. I got the call the next day, took an Adirondack Trailways bus from Port Authority up to Woodstock. That's how my professional career started. What were your inspirations as a piano player? I, I'm a piano player and I wanted, to, at that time, who were you listening to? Was it Nicky Hopkins or Elton John or Leon? Absolutely, Nicky Hopkins. I was just going to say Nicky Hopkins, Max Middleton, Richard. Richard T was one of the one of my biggest influences, and we used to go see him uh, with stuff uh, at McKell's uh, up uh, in uh, on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. Uh, just a, a, an amazing piano player, and uh, you know, I I I I I can't imagine uh, being that good. You know, to this day, I'm I'm not really a piano player. I play piano. But well, so does Neil Young and so does Paul McCartney, you know. But, you know, I mean, being around some of the uh, most brilliant pianists like uh, like Roy Bitten, uh, I've worked with Roy a bunch. And um, uh, this the, the guy who's currently uh, uh, works with Todd Gillisayas, who's an amazing piano player. Uh, I mean, I could rattle off a half a dozen names of people that I work with that. Uh, uh, I, I just wish I was, you know, one tenth as good as. Did you ever see people like Bill Payne? No. Yeah, he's a pretty remarkable, monstrous piano player. I'm a big Little Feet fan. Yeah, his their piano player Billy was amazing, and so so was watching Keith Jarrett live, which is a whole other genre. Have you ever seen him? No, I've never seen Keith. No, uh, very sad though that he can't play anymore. I know. I can't imagine. So we always like to talk on this show, and obviously, you know. You played on some really big records over the years. Obviously, Bad Out of Hell is on there. You got the Rundgren stuff, uh, Joan Jett stuff. But we always like to talk about artwork because Hugh's history of you know doing all the Rush work for all these years amongst all the other bands that he's done album covers for. So I'm going to kick it over to, to Hugh to talk about artwork for album covers a little bit. There's some fundamental questions I'm always curious to ask, and that is how much did it matter to you? Some musicians are all about the music, you know, fuck art, let's dance. So... When you were buying music, how much did shelf appeal and how much did the covers speak to you? When you were inside the band Utopia or even in your own career, how much did you have to do with navigating through the artwork or do you just leave it to the label and, and move on? Well, I think it, it, that, I, that's a really, really, really good thing to talk about because um, back then, 
classic back then. It's like, uh, I hate that. You mean before we started feeding off the carcass of what used to be the music business? That back then? I, I just It just makes me feel really old when I say back then. I remember the, the Meet the Beatles uh, cover, and it's just how how dark it was and how kind of foreboding it was. And and then you put the record on and it's like this happy, happy music, you know, and everybody's like, you know, going about love and this and that. But the photo was just the antithesis of the music, really. Then after that, the way that album covers kind of progressed was, you know, Led Zeppelin, had that first Led Zeppelin album, that was that was more about the music. It wasn't a Led Zeppelin three with the circle with the circle disc in it. That was that was really cool. And the first album that really kind of like when I saw the cover that really just took me by surprise was King Crimson. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, sure. The first King Crimson. Yeah, the Court of the Crimson King. That record cover was just like that was just like an acid trip. As was the record. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, and then Zappa, like um, Hot Rats. Zappa always had great album covers. So that was a time where you would you would get the record, you'd go home, you'd put the record on, and you would just stare at the at the cover, at the liner notes, um, and uh, and you'd read them again and again and again. And the gatefold records that you used to clean your marijuana on, it, it, you know, it was a whole experience. You know, did you ever buy music based on the the strength of a cover? No, never bought a mu a, a piece of music because I liked the cover. I was always it was always on either a recommendation of oh you got to hear this or hearing something on the radio and saying, I got to own that. I looked at some of your covers, you know, the interview magazine, the sort of Andy Warhol paint over photography kind of look. Was that something that you enjoyed? Was that something you requested? Is it a look that you liked or was it just quid pro quo? That's my second solo record. That So that came out in like 2004. That was a, a record that I had complete control over. And um, I, I worked with a, with a graphic designer, a guy by the name of uh, Dave Fletcher really 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 lovely guy i was not so concerned with the album cover as i was with the music because it was a good oh god i don't know 20 years between uh albums i was more concerned about what was inside than what was outside yeah they've got to obviously approve the cover but some people kind of leave it to the others you know leave it leave it to the art director and so on and some people get very involved that's what what i why i was asking you yeah i did i didn't have a whole lot of money at that time and i i funded that record all by myself so um it was either spend three grand on mastering or uh or spend or spend twenty five hundred dollars on a cover i went for the mastering understandable what period of time were you with Joan Jett? So I played with Joan from 1986 to 1989 or 90. Ricky Bird was there. Yes. Yeah, he's a buddy of mine. I, I love Ricky. We're very close. We're, we're still very good friends, and we do work together every so often. Ricky's a brilliant guitar player. We had a lot of fun in Joan's band. We had a, We had a really, really good time playing that music. For me, Joan came at a time... Uh, it, Utopia had just kind of dissolved, and that was the beginning of our long hiatus. We never actually broke up, but we did stop working. There was a lot more supply than there was demand, and so we uh, 
we we kind of took a a, a a pause, uh, and I was left with nothing to do. Um, uh, my friend Tommy Price, who had just uh, finished about maybe seven or eight years with Billy Idol for I don't know how many years he's with Billy, but he was on all the big records, White Wedding and um, Charmed Life, and when there was Rebel Yell. So Tommy and I grew up together. As a matter of fact, we uh, we were on our first band together in the eighth grade. And Tommy had uh, it was one of those guys at that time that was he was getting all the calls in the New York music scene. He had just finished. He he was playing with Mink Deville and a bunch of a scandal. He was on the the scandal records. And if you wanted a a, a great rock drummer, you called Tommy. So he started working with Joan. Jones bass player left. Tommy called me. He knew that I had just finished working with with Utopia and asked me if I wanted to come and do some uh, tracks with Joan in the studio. I met Joan and we hit it off and I wound up being in the band for another three and a half to four years. I loved working with Joan. She is absolutely nobody better than Joan at what she does. I, I'm really honored to have been a black heart for three and a half years yeah you were can you share a little bit about your involvement with meatloaf seems like you were really really involved in that whole process not just bad out of hell but also the second round right so we did the first record uh bad out of hell which has become bad out of hell one we did that in 1976 we started recording that record in the winter of 1976 at the end of that record the basic tracks on that record are just myself uh, Roy Bitten, Max Weinberg, and Todd. Todd on guitar. We did we did that entire record, just the four of us. And of course, then there was a bunch of overdubs and whatever else. Uh, I, when we finished that record, I I swore I would never hear it again. I would I, I this is the last I'm ever going to hear this music. <laughs> uh, about a year and a half after that, I was driving in my car, going up to Woodstock uh, to start a Utopia record. I was listening to WNEWFM uh, on my car stereo, and I heard something that was vaguely familiar uh, on NEW. And I'm like, where have I heard that before? I've heard that. Oh, yeah, that's that record I did a year and a half ago. That's that those two guys, uh, Jim Steinman and that guy Meatloaf. Oh, great. They got their record on the radio. Isn't that cool? That's really nice for them. <laughs> And then it happened again and again and again. Yeah, and then the <laughs> yeah. record just exploded. And we started Bad Out of Hell 2 after that. Um, but that never wound up never coming uh never coming to pass back then. Just to put a button on the uh, on the story. So um, you know, I mean I, I remained uh friendly with Meat and Jim over the years. We we did other myself and Jim did other work together on because Jim wrote songs for everybody from Barry Manilow to Celine Dion, Barbara Streisand, Air Supply, just a ton of other other artists. I guess it was uh, I was playing with Hall and Oates at the time, uh, and we were in Australia. We were doing uh, a tour. We were staying in in Sydney. We we're at the Intercontinental Hotel, and I went downstairs for breakfast. And who do I run into but Meatloaf? It was over there for a softball tournament. We had just finished i did the backgrounds on bad out of hell 2 with todd myself todd rungren and rory dodd did all the backgrounds on that record all the background vocals you know meat said uh chasm i'm putting a band together for my new record for the tour you feel like uh coming in playing uh keyboards and guitar uh we need a, a good background singer too i was like 
Yeah, sure. Uh, Hall and Oates uh, weren't working at that time. They had finished touring and uh, and I was off the road. And I wound up with Meatloaf for that tour. And for the next 17 years, I was in the band, 10 of which I was his musical director. Wow, that's and amazing. I absolutely loved working with me and putting bands together for him and playing that music. And like I said, I started off as the utility guy in 90, 98, I think. I went back to uh, being a bass player in the band and, and the MD. I treasure that time like nobody else. I mean, it doesn't hurt that, you know, that two was number one in this country for 11 weeks and i'd do anything for love was you know just one of the biggest songs of the year in 1994 i think what years was that then i i was with meatloaf from 1993 in his live band 1993 to 2010. i remember that when i started in the business myself at sunshine promotions the first shows that came across my desk the very first day were a bunch of meatloaf shows. They must have been your shows. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I say it's funny, but it's actually very, very sad that the, um, the only two people that aren't around from that from those huge records are Jim and me. Jim passed away two years ago and me passed away earlier this year. Oh, to your term way back when, I mean... <laughs> That that's testament to the fact that we are only immortal for a limited time. Yeah, I want to know who what who your bass player influences were. You know those er, those early Beatle records were um, they they were kind of the bass was a little anonymous on them, um, and uh, it, it was a little bit hard to pick it out just because uh, as records developed as as recording processes developed. Um, the the bass became more and more um, prevalent, and uh, Paul McCartney has always been a, a, a huge influence on me. But um, along the way, that that first uh, couple of uh, Led Zeppelin II was uh, my introduction to John Paul Jones and um, just his uh, his take on that heavy kind of. He was never in the way, but he always played the right thing, you know. And then my one of my one of my biggest influences in my early bass playing was Ronnie Wood. Oh, cool! Yeah, with the Jeff Beck group. Yeah. Yes, and uh, and and that Ron Wood, that Beckola album, uh, and what he did on that record, and that just the sound, the just the rawness of that sound, and uh, he had this attitude of like, I don't care, I, I don't care, I'm just I'm going to play whatever I feel like playing. I, don't you know? I'm, I, am I in the way of the vocal? Probably, but I don't care. <laughs> and uh, and so that that was a big big influence on me. Those guys was a really underrated band. The the truth and and that record with the apple on it were two classic records. Uh, Pre Led Zeppelin, actually the first one was the Truth record. But yeah, Ron Wood, man, smoking smoking bass player. How about vocally? We grew up. Uh, on Staten Island, when I say we, I mean I mean the, the circle of musicians that I that I hung out around with. We were into into kind of pretty much obscure uh, uh, bands that you ne not necessarily would have here in mainstream, like uh, bands like Backdoor, which was that um, was a, a band from the early '60s or mid '60s that was just drums, bass, and saxophone, like uh, Morphine was, right? I don't know Morphine, but uh, but Backdoor was a really interesting band. We were all, 
huge, huge Terry Reed fans. The guy that chose not to be in Led Zeppelin, Terry Reed. Oops. <laughs> yeah, oops. Uh, and to this day, I'm still a, a, a huge Terry Reed fan. Those first couple of albums, Super Lung, um, and then Terry Reed. Uh, uh, the, those albums were a big influence on me vocally. Um, and the only reason that I became a singer was because nobody else wanted to do it. You know, nobody else wanted to be a singer in the band. And I'm like, well, fine. If you don't want to do it, I'll freaking do it. Uh, and that's how I became uh, a, a singer. Yeah, because you had Utopia's biggest U.S. hit, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the the band was responsible for the production and arrangement on that song. Uh, but uh, uh, that was my song. I brought it in and I sang lead on it. And uh, so in 1982 in Canada, while Hugh was busy making the uh, Signals cover for Rush, you were ripping up the charts in 82 in Canada with uh, Don't Break My Heart. It's funny you should just mention I just was at my mom's house earlier today and uh, I found a single of, uh, of, that, uh, uh, of that song. So I, I did chart and have a, a top, I guess it was top. I want to say top 20 hit in Canada with uh, my first uh, solo record. Uh, you need merch that say I'm big in Canada. I'm big in Canada. I was big <laughs> in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to ask a question. So, you know, when you look at your resume, it's a who's who of rock stars and big names over the last 40, 50 years or whatever. How do you choose? You know, is it one of those things where you just kind of, your career's just kind of, you know, ebbed and flowed and it's just kind of presented itself? Or is there... What do you look for when you choose to work work with all these different people? I guess I like I like working with people that are nice. <laughs> I don't necessarily like working with people that are are, are nasty or mean or aloof. Uh, a lot of times, I, I like to feel that that I'm bringing something to the table that uh, is you wouldn't have if you didn't have me. God, I don't know. I mean, would I if 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 Gene Simmons left Kiss? And they said, listen, there's a spot open, but you got to wear a bunch of makeup and nine inch shoes. Would I do it? I don't know. Maybe for a second. <laughs> a I, few I days. I don't know. Depending <laughs> on what that paycheck was. That could well, yeah, but you know what? At a certain point, it's, it, it, it's I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know. I just I just love playing music. I, I, I'll play any kind of music. I don't care what it is. Uh, I'll, I'll play it and I'll uh, and I'll enjoy myself because I have truly truly been blessed uh to be able to do this make a living at it and uh and still be able to like you know walk by myself without a cane uh you know i didn't i didn't do too much damage over the years I, i am forever grateful to have the career that i have had well it's been quite a career absolutely i've been very lucky so what's next for you I'm working on new music, and um, I, uh, I I have a couple of shows coming up next month. Uh, I, I'm doing this. Uh, I, I got involved with um, uh, this band that's celebrating the uh, the 50th anniversary of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. So we're doing some shows behind that. It's uh, it's called the Gilmore Project. Continue to work uh, with Phil um, on uh, on some other stuff. I have. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the interview, I have a weekly radio show that's on in nine markets uh, around the country. Um, it's called It's My World and Welcome to It. Uh, it's an hour of great music. Our flagship station is WDST 
uh, FM in out of Woodstock, New York. I'm on every Sunday night at 7 p.m. I just finished a, a, a podcast of a, a comedic podcast called Unsung uh, that's loosely based on my uh, on my career and my life with my three children. The juxtaposition of uh, of playing in front of 10,000 people and getting in your private plane and flying back and getting in the limo and getting a phone call from the missus saying, by the way, the pails have to go out and we need milk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah. And, and, Been there, uh, done it. Yeah. So that's uh, that that podcast is is, is available on all uh, platforms called Unsung. And uh, yeah, just just looking to uh, to continue to work as long as I possibly can. Don't forget about resurrecting those 30 year old songs. Again. Yeah, man, get back on that. You guys lit a, a, lit a fire under my behind. I'm going to do that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad we were able to finally connect. Yeah, this has been a fun hour. Thank you very, very much. Oh, yeah.